it on the inside. Let's go, let's take it where your friends might not know. Yes, take them to the ringside. I know you've been waiting for me. What's up, everybody? Welcome to Dropping Wisdom with Santos. And today is my reoccurring guest, David. Please introduce yourself. Hey, David Newman, retired homicide detective with the Norfolk Police Department. Okay, now before we get into this uh, cold case, just want to remind everybody to please follow me on Instagram and Facebook, and please rate and subscribe to Dropping Wisdom with Santos on Google Podcasts, Apple iTunes, Amazon Music, and also Spotify. I really would appreciate that. Okay, now, Dave, tell us what cold case file we're doing today. Okay, today's case is kind of a unique one uh, because it was unsolved for many years and uh, an arrest was made, but a conviction uh, never did happen because uh, the direct evidence or a witness uh, in this case ended up passing away. So without any other evidence, the case was ultimately dismissed. Uh, but the PD happened in Fayetteville, Arkansas, and the victim was Nina Ingram, uh, is still investigating the case. Uh, even though they have a suspect in this case, uh, they dismiss charges against, which means they can never be brought back again. But they want to get enough evidence if possible to make it exceptional or even possibly identify another you know, person involved. Okay, what year was this? Uh, 2006 in April, and it was in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Okay, now explain to me why... It got dropped in the in the situ in the way in which he can't be the case can't be charged again against the um, the, the killer. Right. What happens in when you look at homicide investigations and you get to a point uh, when the investigation uh, kind of comes to an end, either you make an arrest and you prosecute a suspect, the case might become a cold case where you have absolutely no evidence at all. Or the case might be inactive, and that's where you have evidence. You know, you have a suspect or you have evidence, you simply hit a brick wall. So there's a, a difference right there between the two, but typically it takes at least a year to get to that point. Um, but in this case with Nina Ingram, uh, it happened in 2006 and 2013. They um, arrested a subject based on an uh, eyewitness account of what had happened and then a third-party confession. So the whole case um, was built on direct evidence, and those are challenging because direct evidence is what is testimonial. It's what a suspect tells you what they did or a witness confesses what they saw, but there's no circumstantial evidence. This case had no prints or DNA uh, or anything of that nature. The whole case was built on what a witness saw and what a witness was told. Okay. That being said, please tell us from start to finish how this whole thing went down. Okay, Nina, and she was a young girl. She was a, a part-time student, and she worked part-time at Walmart uh, to help put herself through school. And she lived in a place that was called the Long Quad Apartments, and that was an area and uh, that was known for some crime. They had break-ins and drug activity and gang activity. And when you look at someone like really any victim, though, and like Nina, and you look at their victimology, you try to establish what their risk factors are, and then you focus on that area to identify a possible suspect or lead. But Nina really had no risk factors other than she lived in a higher crime you know, neighborhood. So she would get off work in the evening. She'd drive her boyfriend's truck home. 
and then walked to her apartment. And the area there was known for crime. But um, what happened is she got home one evening, and the next day she failed to show back up at work. And um, Walmart called her mother, and then her mother called her brother to go by and check on her. So her body was discovered by her brother and his friend uh, when she failed to show up. And that's how a lot of uh, murder scenes are found involving low-risk victims, is they fail to show up somewhere they're supposed to be, and there's a check on their well-being. So that set the whole investigation in motion. And she was discovered on her bed. She had her coat on. She had her phone in her pocket. Uh, she had her purse next to her. So there was nothing in the apartment missing. There's no forced entry, no evidence of a struggle, and, and no assault, you know, sexually or anything of that nature. She died by ligature strangulation. Okay. Now, now when, when the police are told by a witness who they who who they seen, do they just get tunnel vision and just focus up on that one person? You try not to you try not to do that. Of course, you know, any lead, and I think I mentioned this the last one that we did, you know, initially in any homicide investigation, everyone's a suspect. And the ongoing phase is uh simply uh putting all your suspects through a filter. You're trying to um, it's a process of elimination is all that it really is. But if you have a suspect that's on your radar, you know, you focus on that person. But at the same time, you don't want to focus on them alone and ignore other possibilities uh, because time obviously is critical uh, to find other scenes or witnesses or evidence. So you try to keep an objective mindset throughout the whole process. Did she know the killer? She She was acquainted. Uh, with the suspect, the suspect used to work um, there as a maintenance worker. And with Nina, and the one part of victimology that you look at is called investigative analysis. And that is where knowing your victim by those who, who knew her, how would she react in a certain scenario? So she was at home and she walked in on, say, an intruder or uh, somebody came in the door after her and they went to assault her, how would she react? And with Nina, everyone who knew Nina said she would have fought, but there's no evidence here that she did. So that tells us either she was caught off guard or we call it a blitz attack and they didn't have enough chance to respond or the killer could have simply overpowered or overwhelmed her, you know, and she never had a chance to fight back. But um, everything looked like it happened right after she got home and the motive uh, was unclear for, for several years because when you don't have anything missing, there's no sexual assault, uh, it's hard to establish why. And why is a key factor of solvability, although it's not required by law. But uh, ultimately, the suspect who was identified, um, it looks like he, he did this uh, because of a vindictive act. Apparently, he had been... When he did see her come home, and he was out there after he'd been fired, but but he would make advances at her verbally, and she always kind of ignored him. And apparently, uh, the night that she was murdered, when she got home, he was out there, and there was a brief verbal interaction before this happened, which caused him. It, it looks like he did it out of anger. Um, and this guy, and his name was Rico Cone, and um, he got fired. Uh, from the long quad. He was worked there as a maintenance uh, worker, but he was still hanging out in that area. And the night that this happened, there was a witness 
who observed uh, Rico enter the apartment after she came home. So this this person told a female gang member uh, what happened. So she questioned Rico, and Rico confessed to her that he killed Nina. So we call that a third-party confession, which is direct evidence. And um, so she apparently got in trouble. She had a, a drug charge, and she came forward uh, with this information trying to help herself out with another case. So they, they did have a direct, well, we call it direct evidence, but in this case, it was a third-party confession. Okay, now you're saying with another case, because she'd been trying to, could could there, was there a rumor like, well, she's just trying to lie to get a, a lower sentence yep. on her own case? That happens a lot. And we did that a lot when I was in homicide. Um, you'll get people who get in trouble and they have information, which initially they don't cooperate because a lot of people just don't cooperate with the police. Um, but when they get in trouble, they're seeking help. If they provide information, will that help out my charge or, you know, shorten my sentence? And that's what happened really here. She came forward after being charged with some unrelated crime. Okay, now let's take the, um, the focus off this alleged person that killed her. And uh, let me get asked some of these other questions here. She was, was she sexually assaulted? You said no. No. Okay. Now, did they look into it to see if she if it was an ex-lover, a boyfriend, a girlfriend? They, they looked at everything here. Now, she had a boyfriend. And they ruled him out right away because he worked at Walmart overnight stocking shells and they had him, they had him there. So they know the boyfriend, uh, didn't do it. They looked at her brother possibly as a suspect because initially you look at everybody, um, who, who might be involved. So they're, they're going through that whole process and eliminating people. And the challenging thing about with Nina, if you rule it out being personal, and okay, it might be an acquaintance or someone she met at, at work, you know, as a customer. But that that increases your suspect pool in an awful lot, and that does make it challenging. But when you have someone like Nina who is low risk and she's found murdered in her home, uh, cases like that are rarely random. That they account for less than two percent of all murders in the country annually. So in almost every murder, there is some association there. And they believe with Nina, it was probably an acquaintance. Okay. Now, does she have a roommate? No. Okay. No roommate. Was she having an affair? Not that they are aware of. I mean, all by all accounts, when you look at Nina, by those who knew her, her family, her friends, she was a straight shooter. I mean, a real pretty girl working hard, you know, get through school and faithful to her boyfriend. So there was no evidence about her. Uh, maybe having someone on the side that may have gotten jealous or did this to her. Coworker. They looked at everything. Yeah, coworkers you look at, because when you have, when you talk about association um, with suspect and victim, there's three areas you look at, personal, acquaintances, and a professional relationship. And we call that, we call it a pyramid of association. So you start at the very top, and we use a pyramid by design. But if it's personal, your suspect pool just got dwindled down some. But the further down that pyramid you go from acquaintance to a professional, and in her case, it's what we would call an indirect act of murder, which means a conflict preceded the death. And those are challenging as well because this one, um, it did not look like it was planned. The, the, the murder weapon was obtained in the scene and left behind, which means it wasn't planned. It was triggered. And it was also disorganized because when you leave evidence behind, 
uh, like the ligature used to kill her. Um, you know, that just shows it wasn't planned. But in this scenario, the murder weapon was identified without any, you know, evidence outside of Nina being on it. But then you have that, that misconception that if, you know, someone touches something, they're always going to leave behind. And that's not the case. I mean, because Rico, uh, they found no evidence of latent prints or DNA, uh, does not mean he was not in the apartment. And a lot of people kind of fall in that trap a little bit. Yeah, because the TV lets you know if you like, if you touch, um, what, what, what was the alleged thing that, that killed her? Um, Christmas lights? Yeah, Christmas lights. So there was no fingerprints, no fingerprints, no DNA well, of him. On Christmas lights, of course, we look at the, the, the element that's used right there. That would be maybe a source of DNA. Um, and there could have very well been DNA in that scene, but it might not have been found. We're, you know, we talk about DNA, you're talking about skin cells or a shaft of human hair, uh, which are sources of DNA from the body. But DNA, uh, you know, it's, it's it's one of those things you try to find by processing your scene, you know, any evidence. But there's always, you know, possibly evidence that's just never discovered left behind. Okay, now, they also looked into uh, someone else that's lived in the building? They looked at, yeah, whenever you do any homicide, you're, you're going to canvas the neighborhood. So you'll look at, um, in your canvas boundaries, any possible, in a case like this, you look at sex offenders, felons. Um, those who are home during that period, which, it, it, you know, most of them were there at nighttime. And they consider the fact that maybe she walked in on a burglary because there were break-ins going on in the neighborhood. But then again, that, that kind of fell through because of the absence of forced entry or anything missing. Yeah, nothing was stolen. No money, no TV, cell nothing. phone, nothing. Yep. Okay. Now, the question I have, like, I know if I'm being strangled. I'm going to be clawing at the guy, the arm, the face, whatever. So there was no DNA underneath her fingernails. Nope. No, no, not nothing outside of her own. So that's protocol. Whatever you do, an autopsy, you're clipping the nails. Because uh, I would think that would be, you know, I would think that was right. where you could get some DNA. Well, out, right? if he overpowered her, now there was evidence because um, on the bed, she had her, I want to say her right arm, uh, was on the bed or left arm and one arm was hanging off the bed but on one of her hands there was a bunch of her hair wrapped around her hand so it looks like when the suspect put a ligature around her neck she used her own hands trying to you know pull that ligature off and pull her hair out but you know that that also uh might suggest that she had, didn't have direct contact with him you know that that is possible as well but they did process the christmas lights for any uh other DNA and they found nothing at all. Okay. Now you said that, uh, the reason why the case was dropped was because the witness changed her statement. The witness actually, um, and this is totally unexpected. Uh, she got sick before trial. This is 2015. So Rico was arrested in 2012 or 13. He's in jail pending trial. And the witness who was cooperative, you know, all the way up until trial, she apparently got sick of a uh, natural, like a gallbladder infection or something of that nature, appendicitis. And then she ended up dying on the operating table. So the only witness they had was gone. And apparently uh, before she died, she made a statement uh, recanting that Rico confessed to her. So the credibility, I think, with that witness went away. Now, she could have said that, um, you know, for whatever reason. I still believe 
that that Rico did it because of seeing uh, without a doubt support someone like Rico versus someone she knew or was close to. But once you um, you indict someone and they're pending trial and you lose your best witness, there's no other option other than to dismiss the case, which means it cannot be brought back up. So you unless they find new evidence, even then it can't. Well, yeah, even then, you might want to try to you might go after someone civilly. But once you dismiss a charge against someone, they could confess to you. Yep, I did it. See ya and walk away. You can't do a thing. Because then never become a devil, double jeopardy. Yep, exactly. Now the only thing that they would uh, would they want to do now the case right now is still considered to a degree inactive. Um, can you make it exceptional? Which means there's evidence to warrant somebody being prosecuted, but it's not going to happen. You might be able to do that, but right now the Fayetteville PD uh, still considers this case to be an open. You know, case because it think, could be someone else. Well, I don't. I don't think because if it's him, they have to close it because they can't charge him. Right? Well, if it is him, they can close it exceptional. But if she recants her her statement, said, "Okay, he didn't tell me that. I lied." Okay, well then, how credible was was that piece of evidence? That's the thing. You can only make a case exceptional is if you identify a suspect and there is evidence to warrant them being prosecuted, but for whatever reason, you don't because they die. They're dead or serving life somewhere else. But in this scenario, there's there's not enough evidence to say that they could have, without her statement, prosecuted Rico. Now, if someone else did it, and I, I think that's Fayetteville PD's position right now, is maybe someone else did because he was adamant that he didn't do it, which, you know, suspects lie all the time anyway. But I don't know, you know, if what links that he went to, did he take a polygraph test? And that, I don't know. That's something I never did ask Fayetteville. But even though a polygraph test is simply an investigative tool, it can't be used against you in court because the test is only as valid as a person really giving it. Because I've seen people who are innocent who fail polygraphs. I've seen people who are guilty pass. So That's why, in my opinion, I would never take one. Yeah. It, yeah, you have a false negative. Yeah, I will never up. take one. Because, and and the, the thing is, when you see documentaries and all this stuff, they always make, oh, he didn't want, or that person didn't want to take the lie detector test. Oh, that must be because he's guilty. I'm like, nowadays they show time and time again, yes. even if you tell the truth, you're still looked upon. You can still be guilty oh, or, yeah. or vice versa. So it's like, I'm not taking that, you know? Well, we talked about that too. Well, we covered the case of Matt Stewart in, in Carolina where his wife and, and her mom were suspicious. And they they mm-hmm. still are. I think today that case is still wide open. Uh, they cooperated. They took a polygraph and they passed. But it doesn't mean they're not involved, you know. So that's simply a tool to, I think, gauge someone's reaction to something. Because we did a case, I think. Um, what if, what if, um, I'm sorry to interrupt. But okay. What if, um, you said that was a very, that was a, a lot of gangs were in that area. Could have been someone else that was that killed her for a gang initiation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you can't rule that out. Because he well. was because that dude Rico was in the gang. Rico was. Yes. Yeah, he had been released or uh, fired for that very reason. He was apparently not supposed to be out there, but how and they were having break-ins. That he was suspected of. Now, he, there's no way I think that um, she let him in. Either he had a key. Um, to get in, because if she looked outside, if she saw Rico when she got home, she's not going to let that man in her apartment. I mean, she was they didn't like each other, or he didn't. She didn't well, like him. Yeah, they never really actually 
they they weren't even really acquainted. You know, she'd come home, he'd see her, he'd make some derogatory comment, and she'd fire back every now and then. She just totally blew him off. He didn't like that. And the night this happened, the witness said he was out there. She came home, and he made another comment, which she blew him off, and it made him mad. So he did it out of, you know, you don't disrespect me that way. And it was a vindictive and there wasn't any cameras that caught anything? They didn't have any, uh, no, not now. I know they do check that. I know when you have a, when you define a canvas boundary and, you know, that could be, you know, it's all based on your scene. Some canvas boundaries are huge based on if you're industrial scene, uh, commercial, residential. But you, you define a canvas boundary and we call that throwing a dragnet out. And you try to drag as much data as you can from that area. And that includes video cameras, cell phone tower data, license plate readers. Um, you've got also things like um, field interview databases. There's all kinds of databases today because of technology that makes that, that job a lot easier. But when this happened in 2006, there was nothing out there as far as surveillance videos. Like, you know, today, most people have a ring application. Yeah. They have cameras are everywhere. So it's really hard to do anything today and not be caught on video somewhere. But that's always part of canvassing. When you go out and you knock on doors, you look for videos, look for cell phone towers. We mentioned before you can do uh, the um, the geofence of an area as well. Hey, I was about to say, I don't think geofencing would have helped in this case because he's already hanging around in that area. Well, geofencing it, can't put can't put him in that apartment, though, no, can it? No, it can't. That's what I'm saying, but he's already hanging around, so that right. wouldn't have been able but to at help. Least, well, at least you know, okay, during that time, was he in that area? Because he, he denies being there at all. Well, like in, in, around the building? Yeah. Yep. He well, said he wasn't there that night. So... I'm not really what sure. Time, what time of night? What time did that happen? It was around midnight. She got around home midnight. close okay. to midnight. She got home after work, and and that would have been the time he's usually out there. Um, but you know, if you do a geofence, okay, you're right. Okay, we gather a whole bunch of data. He was in that area, and then like anything else, it's a process of elimination. And there's a lot of places, and I, I don't, you know, I understand it to a degree, but there's a lot of privacy issues people have with geofencing. Because you could be like riding your bike to a neighborhood where there was a murder happen and boom, you're there. So it's not as if the cops are going to come bust down your door, you know, and, and, and rake you through the coals. It's just that you're a piece of the puzzle. So you're, you might have been a witness. You might have information. So geofencing, I don't think there's, I, I don't see the privacy issues, but it is a great though tool to have. In this case, if it was like, the defense, if they used the geofencing, would say, well, 10 other people were around there, too. Right. So what makes him guiltier than you, them? Well, yeah. And you there's always, you're always going to have, when you, do, when you geofence an area, you're going to get a lot of data. And you got to weed through it. And when they had the murder, I talked about this, I think, last time in Carrollton, Georgia, they, the older lady murdered her, her house. Nice neighborhood, lived alone, no crime. And it looked like a home invasion, which it was. And when they ran out of options, they did a geofence and they identified 6,000 people Ugh. in that area. So you have to weed through 6,000 pieces of data and narrow down who did it. And they did in that case. They identified a, a boyfriend, girlfriend team like Bonnie and Clyde, and they confessed to doing it. Hmm. I said guiltier. Is that, is that, is that right? Or should, should I say more guilty? Guilty or worse? Uh, either word? one works more guilty. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> either one works. I know, guiltier. Is that, is, I don't know if that's the word. Guilty is? Okay. Okay. Now, 
Is there anything to discuss about this case? Because I'd like to go talk about the one we did last. Uh, with Nina right now, you know, cases like this, I know for her family, it's, it's frustrating because it was never settled. And closure is such a big part of in, any homicide for the victim and family. And in this case, there wasn't closure. And I know that that, you know, they, they have a foundation now for Nina and victims' families um, that that they have. They do fundraisers and, and things like that. But but unless they find additional evidence that Rico did it, and they might, you never know, then all they can do is say, okay, now it's settled. It's exceptional, but he never got punished for it. Mm. So, you know, that happens. Every now and then you see people who you think are guilty and they walk away. You have OJ. Um, you have Casey Anthony, you know. And people think, okay, there's overwhelming evidence that they did it, yet they walk away. But that's our system of justice. You know, not everyone who's guilty is going to go to prison. And you might not like the results. You have to accept it. But those cases are closed. You know, it's not like Nina. Um, they can't close Nina's case because of the lack of evidence that they had with OJ and with Casey Anthony. There was mm -hmm. evidence that they did it. So yeah. those cases are um, effectively closed. This one is not. Okay. Um, just to let all, all the listeners know out there that if you have any questions about these cases, message me and I will ad re I will address those questions on our next cold case oh, yeah. episode. Just Absolutely. So everyone know that I have I have no problem doing that because someone came up uh, hit me up asking about the Kate, uh, Katie Lavender case. Right. Okay. You said there's a video of her getting into that car. There is a video of a vehicle that someone said they saw her get into. If, if you go to, um, if you Google Katie Lavender's name and you'll go to the site, um, I think it's a local paper, you'll see a picture of a car. A four-door white yes, sedan. Yes, with, with no front tag. Yeah. The question that um, that I was brought, so, okay, you, you might have seen her getting into this car, but did anyone see her get out of that car or see that car drop her off at the apartment? No. Okay. And even though you know I'm saying, cause that's okay. Well, maybe, you know, right. It could have been someone she knew who just picked her up and dropped her off. Yeah. Um, but the thing about that too is maybe it wasn't Katie. The lady said she, it looked like her. Yeah. So it could have been something totally unrelated, you know, but again, any evidence is brought up. You have, you've got to look into, and unless you can actually, you know, rule it out, then it's going to still be there when in her case, it's still there. Yeah. And if any of these cases get solved, I'll be, we'll be the first to let everyone know on the podcast that's listening that, that these cases are any updates as well. Yes. Yeah. On the website, in fact, um, that, that I have inside the tape.com. Uh, and right now they're kind of backed up a little bit, but we're adding a page by the end of this month or in August about these unsolved cases. And it is, we get updates about these cases, the ones that we cover in these podcasts, then we'll update those on the website as well. Awesome. That's great. All right. Well, thanks for um, another cold case review of Nina Ingram. And uh, anything else you want to add, man? No. Nope. Until off? next time. Yeah, we'll have another one next month. Uh, we'll we'll dig out uh, this this month and uh, and pick one that's uh, unlike Nina. We'll pick one where there's absolutely say either cold or inactive, but not in any way resolved yet. Okay. All right, guys. Thank you for listening, and I'll talk to you guys next time.